0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We are deep into the 2020 coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic, and I hope you're all getting by okay, employing measures to avoid contracting and spreading the infection and trying to maintain your emotional well-being. Eventually, this pandemic will run its course, and hopefully loss of human life will be just as minimal as possible. Here on Animals Today, we're particularly interested in the relationship of non-human animals to our current situation, and there are at least two broad areas we're going to explore with today's guest, Dr. John Pippin. namely, how and why do diseases like the virus causing this pandemic move from animals to humans, and how and why animals are used in vaccine development and testing? Dr. Pippin serves as Director of Academic Affairs at PCRM, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Welcome back to the program, John.
1: Well, thank you, Laura and, and Peter. It, it's always great to speak with your audience because I know they want to uh, cut to the chase and learn the truth that you can't always learn from uh, mainstream media.
0: John, I'm so glad we're tackling these topics, but it's a very anxious time for everyone, and I'm hopeful that what we cover here will serve as a reference after we have emerged from this hell and have new resolve to take on these big issues. A pandemic like the current one was bound to happen sooner or later, even though some people refer to it as a black swan event, which would have been totally unpredictable. What elements, if any, of this pandemic surprise you?
1: What surprises me the most, I suppose, is how unprepared the world has been for dealing with this. We have a long, long history, as you know, of previous epidemics and pandemics uh, from which we could have learned a lot more than we did and it seems like every time uh, this happens whether it's bird flu or swine flu or ebola or sars or mers or, or whatever we it's like we start over and that shows a lack of ability to learn and much of that lack of ability to learn rests with the fact that the research that has been conducted to try to develop not only drugs to treat the infections, but vaccines to prevent it, uh, has involved animals and has not translated successfully to humans.
0: John, there have been many news stories about the origins of this virus, and I want to allow you as much time as you need to explain our best understanding of where and how it arose. It seems like the theory that a weaponized virus escaped from the Wuhan Virology Research Lab have not been borne out, and that origins in one or more animals is likely. And you hear about pangolins and bats. Where did this virus come from?
1: well i'm glad you brought up the uh the thinking that it might be a weaponized virus from a chinese lab or it might have originated by accident in a in a lab somewhere those are what we call conspiracy theories and people love conspiracy theories however there's not any evidence that these viruses either this one or previous ones came from any uh, um, intention or came from laboratory accidents or came from any other uh, mode of transition other than from non-human animals to the human animals, so-called zoonoses or diseases that can be transmitted from non-humans to humans. In the case of this COVID-19 infection, the organism, the SARS-CoV-2, is traceable, it seems, just like the SARS epidemic and just like the MERS epidemic, traceable to bats as an original source. And the intermediary carrying the virus has been different. For the SARS cases back in 2002, 2003, it seems that the transmitting agent was civet cats. In the MERS epidemic, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome epidemic, a decade later, again, uh, the origin is believed to be bats and the intermediary uh, is dromedary camels. And the reason the intermediaries are so different is that the SARS epidemic, just like the current COVID-19, originated in China, whereas the 2012 uh, MERS epidemic originated in Saudi Arabia, which explains where camels came in. The current virus also originated in China, although not uh, through some uh, subversive government experiments or anything. It came from, again, it looks like from bats. It's not exactly clear uh, what the intermediary is, but the evidence points toward pangolins. Not Let me pronounce that. Not penguins, <laughs> but but pangolins, which sounds like penguins, but pangolins are one of the most uh, abused animals on the planet, uh, partly because they are eaten by so many cultures. And it is believed that this particular virus escaped from bats to probably pangolins to humans. And because it has such an extraordinarily high infectious ratio, then quickly spread Uh, among the human populations. And, you know, it's the 21st century. People travel all over the world and in no time at all, uh, this virus was showing up all over the planet.
0: John, you mentioned some of the prior epidemics. Allow me to remind listeners of these. SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. This 2003 outbreak of a coronavirus killed 774 people. And MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, also a coronavirus, killed 628 people in 2012. And then the H1N1 swine flu outbreak of 2009 was a type of influenza that killed more than 12,000 people worldwide. That one was thought to originate in Mexico. And now, John, let's go way back to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. How was that similar or different from the current pandemic?
1: The 1918 flu epidemic called Spanish flu, although it did not originate in Spain, was another form of swine flu, Uh, not exactly the same, but similar to the uh, uh, swine flus we've seen since then. You just mentioned the 2009 H1N1 swine flu, but the the 1918 flu pandemic occurred near the end of the First World War. Uh, The infectivity was approximately, by by that I mean the likelihood that it would spread from one person to another is about the same as the one we're going through now, the COVID-19. The mortality rate was about 2.5%, and it spread to so much of the planet that um, an amazing number of people were killed. You had to go back to the Black Plague to, to find more people killed, Third, between 30 million and 50 million people worldwide. And just to put it into perspective, this was near the end of the First World War, but more people died from that flu than died in World War I. So that, that's how astounding that was. That's how, what a world-changing uh, event that was, and it was because of two factors. Number one, the fact that it transmitted from animals that we abuse in a variety of ways and eat, and uh, secondly, because it was something that uh, was unlike anything else that had infected humans, and so they were pretty helpless against it.
0: So, John, what are we, the world scientific community and policymakers, doing right and doing wrong in efforts to prevent infectious disease outbreaks?
1: It depends on what country you talk about, unfortunately. There is no unified approach worldwide. The World Health Organization does not have the authority to impose um, certain restrictions or to prescribe how we control the virus. That is something that is done country by country, and in the United States, primarily state by state, although we're starting to see some effort from the federal government. What we have done wrong is we have failed to learn from previous viral exposures in humans how to go about developing vaccines and drugs and, in fact, uh, because both the SARS epidemic in 2002 and 2003 and the MERS epidemic in uh, 2012 were short-lived, in other words, they didn't last for several years, mm-hmm. once they abated, the stimulus to do research on these viruses um, disappeared funding disappeared. Nobody was excited by their research anymore because you weren't going to cure anybody of a disease that no longer existed. So that's one thing we did wrong. Another thing we have done wrong, and uh, perhaps Italy is the best example of this, was they rocketed past uh, China in their susceptibility to the virus because they did not impose uh, travel restrictions or what we're calling social distancing. Um, They did not do that until well into the uh, uh, local epidemic, and now Italy has virtually locked itself down, and some very stringent measures have been imposed, including uh, criminal charges against people who uh, violate the stay-in-place stipulations. So Uh, First, the fact that we did this to animals and put ourselves in a position to get it. Secondly, we didn't respond appropriately to the lessons we had learned before, that the way to cap off or what we call flatten the curve now is to keep people away from one another, like keeping people out of crowds, keeping people at home, limiting the contact that can spread the disease especially for a virus that transmits so easily person-to-person as this uh, SARS-CoV-2 that causes the COVID-19 disease. Yet one more way that we have done this wrong. We didn't anticipate it. We didn't prepare for it. Because we were unprepared, we have seen every day thousands of new cases, every day more deaths. Nearly 2,500 deaths in the United States so far from this virus, which is more than we saw with SARS, which is more than we saw with MERS and many other viruses along the way.
0: Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to continue our discussion with Dr. John Pippen about the COVID-19 pandemic. You're listening to Animals Today. back to Animals Today. We're speaking with Dr. John Pippen. John, just before the break, you were speaking about all the things we're doing wrong. In your opinion, what things, if any, are we doing right about combating this virus?
1: Well, um, late in the game, but better late than never, we engaged our scientific experts in this discussion, and it became more of a medical and epidemiological discussion than a political discussion, which it had been primarily. Uh, based on um, uh, various economic factors, not least of which were job losses, businesses closing, and stock market uh, dropping precipitously. But we did uh, eventually uh, bring in medical experts. Tony Fauci of the National Institute uh, for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, one of the 27 uh, National Institutes of Health, has been prominent until recently in explaining what the virus is, how it happened, why it spread so much, and what you have to do to slow it down. And that basically comes down to preventing exposures that will lead to more infections. And that's where all the uh, advice to stay home, stay out of crowds, don't go to South Beach for your spring uh, vacation, Um, don't eat in restaurants, Don't go to church on Sunday. That's all good advice because that's how you stop the rapid increase of the virus. And also um, using masks in appropriate situations. And I I can't forget, of course, the, the most important and simplest guideline, which is to wash your hands. Uh, wash your hands with soap. You don't need to use expensive antibacterial soaps because we're not talking about bacteria. We're talking about viruses. Uh, just use soap and water and be thorough about it and do it several times a day. Do it after you've touched surfaces. Do it after you've uh, encountered other people, if you've touched other people, and so on.
0: Okay, so let's move on to current efforts to create a vaccine, which disappointingly is going to take at least a year before it becomes generally available. So, for current conventional vaccine development and testing, John, please describe how this is done.
1: Okay, um, first, that uh, standard estimate of 12 to 18 months before a vaccine is developed that's only if a vaccine is developed Uh, most vaccines don't work most of our chronic infectious diseases do not have vaccines to treat them we tried to develop vaccines for the SARS epidemic and then a decade later for the MERS epidemic and we've tried it every epidemic that has come along and it generally has failed so The real answer to that is if we can develop a vaccine successfully using traditional methods, we expect it to take 12 to 18 months. The fact of the matter is the likelihood that a vaccine will be developed diminishes the more we stick to traditional uh, methods. What has been done for the COVID-19 pandemic is largely what was done for SARS and MERS uh, epidemics, in that uh, laboratory animals, predominantly mice, were used to study the infections, to try to determine the mechanisms, and to develop vaccines that would attach to important parts of the viral particle and thereby block the activity of the virus. There are basically, oh, I guess, four methods for developing these vaccines. One is to use a um, the virus, but a weakened form of the virus, so that it's live but cannot transfer infection. Um, it, it, at least theoretically, cannot transfer infection. The advantage of that is that Two doses generally will provide lifetime immunity for live vaccines. Um, The downside is that um, sometimes they don't work and sometimes they will produce a form of the disease because uh, certain populations will be more susceptible to the weakened virus. The second way is to take these viruses and kill them and to attach the killed viruses to a transmitting molecule to stimulate a, an immunological reaction. The benefit of that is that it cannot transmit disease. It can be given to people with weakened immune systems, whereas the live virus cannot. Um, the, the, the downside is it requires several repetitive doses to maintain immunity. And the more doses you require to do that, the more often people are gonna kind of fall off and not get enough uh, doses. The third way is to use part of the virus. For instance, if, if you have a protein on the surface of a virus that we know is the entry point for that virus to get into cells, you can just clip off I say that like you use nail clippers, but it, 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 uh, you can you can use uh, technology to isolate that part of the virus, incorporate it into a vaccine, and that way, the only part of the virus you 're giving is the part that is um, essential for uh, the infection to take place, yeah. and the fourth way, and hopefully one that will become the only way in the future is. Uh, to use genetic engineering to alter the genetic content of uh, vaccines so that they can, um, they can uh, transfer immunity without having to be tested in animals and without the likelihood of transmission of disease.
0: Okay, we've got to take another break. When we return, we're going to talk about modernizing vaccine development. You're listening to Animals Today. Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him.
1: You need to report this right away. What do you mean? You should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of.
0: Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to Animal Services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org
1: you are listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in its 12th year, Animals Today covers all animal-related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. Animals Today is a project of the non-profit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interest of Animals will support the ongoing production of animals today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening.
0: This is Dr. Lori Kirscher. You're listening to Animals Today. You know, Animals Today is a project of advancing the interest of animals. Advancing the interest of animals is a nonprofit animal welfare organization. We're based here in Palm Springs, California. And if you like what we're doing, please consider donating a little bit to Advancing the interests of Animals to support the continued production of the show. The website's aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back to the show. Dr. John Pippin. before the break, you talked about the current ways vaccines are developed. What could and should be done to improve vaccine development and also get away from using animals?
1: Yeah, it's, it so happens that by doing the ethically correct thing, which is getting animals out of the picture, we're also doing the scientifically uh, correct thing which is enhancing the ability to produce vaccines that, number one, work, and number two, um, that are applicable to humans with a much, much lower failure rate than those developed with uh, animals. We learned from the SARS epidemic and the MERS epidemic uh, in the early part of the 21st century that the laboratory research done with mice did not, work. The mice were not uh, did not respond to the exposure to the virus in a way that allowed them to be studied to develop a vaccine. With this new infection, the COVID-19 infection, the early laboratory research with mice has gone even farther. Mice are not even susceptible to this virus. So you can't even give them a the disease, and what the research community has done is respond by saying, we're going to have a delay in the development of a vaccine because we have to create new mouse models to study it. Well, I'm sorry, that, that's just wrong. There are approaches that do not use animals and that use uh, human cellular components, so that the information obtained is directly applicable to humans. Two two ways, one I mentioned was genetic engineering of uh, immune cells. Another one is immune cell propagation, which involves collecting infection-fighting immune cells from patients, followed by culturing of the cells and encourage them to reproduce and then reintroducing much larger populations of these cells back into the patient and theoretically incorporate them into a vaccine to be given to other patients and these are antibodies these are immune cells that have been shown already to be able to defeat uh, the virus because they're from patients who have recovered from the virus more recently, it's been possible to use gene editing techniques to modify immune cell receptors so they have a greater attachment, a greater affinity for the invader cell antigens, that is the viral antigens. For instance, the spiked cell surface receptors of the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, is a target that can be used for that uh, genetic engineering process this process is further along in developing cancer treatments but the same principles apply to treating uh, infectious diseases the the journey from laboratory experiments to human benefits is so Is so low yield that researchers refer to it as the valley of death. Now I heard that when I was a researcher you hear it in conferences you say how do we get across the valley of death which means from animal experiments to humans. These are two ways to do that and oh by the way neither of them involves the use of non-human animals. They use materials that we know already are effective in combating these viruses, and they either um, propagate them or they modify them genetically so that they can be given to other people with the, the disease or at risk of the disease. So that's what we should be doing instead of what we are doing, which is falling down the same rabbit hole we fell down with SARS and MERS, and If we're lucky, there may be a vaccine in 12 to 18 months, but we may not be lucky. And we shouldn't be betting on that. We should be betting on human-relevant research, which we know to be more successful.
0: Yep. You know, something everyone is familiar with are the yearly flu vaccines. Each year, scientists try to predict what strain of flu will emerge and devise an appropriate vaccine, the production of which involves chickens. John, tell us about that.
1: The flu vaccine is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it has saved a lot of lives. On the other hand, it's not very effective on a population basis. Each year, uh, the the flu is an annual disease. It it, uh, comes back every year. Each year, scientists identify, to the greatest extent they can, the strains of the influenza virus that are causing the disease in that particular year or that particular season. And they develop vaccines using the old-fashioned animal testing methods primarily to address those uh, strains of the virus. Uh, The downside is that sometimes it will not work. Uh, because of what I call the valley of death, that inability to translate animal research methods to humans. And all the time, it has a low yield, typically in the 40 to 50% range for protecting people from the uh, particular uh, strains of the virus that are active at that time. That's what makes the flu so... So on the one hand, difficult to get under control and so prominent in causing thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of deaths every year because we, we cannot get it right.
0: John, do we have current technologies that will allow us to get away from animal testing and vaccine development?
1: Yeah, we do. Um, some of them are fully developed, like the uh, immune cell propagation technique that I mentioned. Some of them are um, in development and could be used, such as the genetic engineering. People might say, well, you can't use something you haven't tested on people or animals. And I would say, well, we're doing that right now. We're, using, we're studying a vaccine that's never been shown to work just because the need is so desperate. And we're testing drugs against this uh, COVID-19 disease that have never been shown to work, but we're skipping the intermediate steps and using them anyway. To my knowledge, although it's pretty early in the game, we um, we have not hit the bullseye yet. So yes, we do have the ability to do that. The the decisions about where to draw the line should be in the hands of scientists, not politicians. Uh, we have Tony Fauci, uh, mentioned, is the head of National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases. We have many scientists who have spent their careers uh, studying uh, these viral vectors, and that's where we should look for leadership. We should take it out of the political sphere and put it into the scientific sphere. It could be done, but it's much harder to do in America because we are um, not a democracy but a republic. Um, It's easier to do in countries that are autocratic, like China. Um, China claims that they have capped off their... Uh, infections because they have um, enforced very strict um, actions. Um, There are two ways to look at that. Number one, if anyone could do that, China could because it's an autocracy. Uh, On the other hand, uh, can you believe them? They have shown already in this pandemic that they would lie to uh, try to suppress the truth. They harassed the scientists who exposed this, who by the way eventually died of the disease. Um, so uh, we're stuck with the politics interfering the science again, but we know that the current science is not good enough to win. We know that we have people who understand uh, the best science to go about this, and we should put a medical and scientific urgency in the hands of medical and scientific experts. That's. That's what we need to do.
0: Okay, more about this viral pandemic after this next break. You're listening to Animals Today. Today's Animals Today Minute is about three of the largest birds on Earth. Did you know that the ostrich is the world's largest bird? It's true. The ostrich typically weighs between 140 pounds and 350 pounds, and the adults stand six to nine feet tall. Ostriches are also the fastest two-legged animal on land. They can run up to 60 miles per hour and sustain that pace for quite a while. Commensurate with their size, the eggs of ostriches are the largest of all bird eggs, weighing about three pounds each and measuring six inches long. Their huge eyes, about two inches across, are the largest of any land animal, but also larger than their own brains. They allow the detection of slight movements of potential predators from great distances. Their relatives are cassowaries, emus, kiwis, and rias. The wandering albatross, or the snowy albatross, is the largest living flying bird. It has the largest wingspan of any bird, exceeding 11 feet in some individuals. They fly distances of up to 75,000 miles in a single year, adding up to 15 million miles over one's life. That's some serious mileage. An adult male weighs up to 25 pounds. The wandering albatross employs a flight technique called dynamic soaring to conserve calories and harness the wind's energy to soar beautifully above open waters. And they have a special gland located above their nasal passages which allows them to regulate their body's salt balance by excreting a concentrated saline solution from it. Recently, their numbers have been rapidly declining, putting them on the red list for conservation status. The emperor penguin is the largest and heaviest species of penguin and is native to Antarctica. They weigh up to 100 pounds and stand 45 inches in height. Like all penguins, they are flightless. Their bodies are exquisitely hydrodynamic and they have strong flippers, both of which make them excellent swimmers. They can swim up to speeds of 12 miles per hour. Emperor penguins can also dive deeper than any other bird and they can hold their breath for more than 20 minutes. The emperor penguins share their labor when it comes to preparing for the young, with the male taking care of newly laid eggs. During that time, male penguins eat nothing for more than two months. The females search for food in the open oceans, collect it in their bellies, and regurgitate the swallowed food for the newly hatched chicks. Emperor penguins all look virtually identical, which makes individual recognition very difficult. To overcome this, emperor penguins have evolved different sounding voices and the ability to recognize the unique voices of their mates or chicks. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Animals Today fun facts for today are about prairie dogs. Despite their name, prairie dogs are not dogs but members of the rodent family, like squirrels. They grow to be between 12 and 17 inches in length, and they weigh between 2 and 4 pounds. Prairie dogs are very social rodents that live in huge underground burrows called towns where they can be tens of thousands of prairie dogs and their tunnels can travel for miles in every direction. Prairie dogs are very affectionate towards each other and will spend a lot of time grooming each other. They will also touch noses when they approach each other like a little kiss, and these are Animals Today, fun facts for the day. Welcome back. Dr. John Pippin. I'd be curious about your thoughts on contemporary industrial production of meat, eggs, and milk with regard to the possibility of spawning a large disease outbreak. Now again, aside from the monumental animal cruelty concerns, Americans are consuming antibiotics and hormones from these products, not to mention the unhealthy fats they contain. Extreme confinement in the CAFOs, that's the concentrated animal feeding operations, causes so much stress on these poor animals, they need to be fed antibiotics their whole short lives. But how about causing infectious disease epidemics and worse?
1: Yeah, there's a a very powerful principle in medicine called antibiotic resistance. And it works in people and it works in animals. And what happens is when uh, animals are infected or people are infected and they're given an antibiotic, that antibiotic will kill a certain percentage, not 100%, but usually enough, 90-something percent, that the body can then uh, destroy the rest of the infection. When you um, have food sources that are exposed to not one but several antibiotics they're in their entire lives. What you're doing is each time you go through that you're selecting more and more resistant bugs that will show up in the meat, can show up in humans, and result in what we call antibiotic resistant infections. Antibiotic resistant infections related to the way we abuse and use animals Uh, have increased the mortality of what used to be treatable infections to uh, frightening levels. So the answer to your question is by um, crowding these animals into CAFOs, confined animal feeding operations, by giving them antibiotics for their entire lives, by slaughtering them for consumption by humans, you you are propagating a uh, a perfect soup of circumstances to transmit infections from animals to humans. Some people eat bats. Okay, well, uh, we get these coronavirus infections came from bats. Some eat pigs. At least two of these major uh, epidemics have come from swine. Uh, some people eat other animals, pangolins, monkeys, Uh, that also carry these diseases. So both in the way we produce these animals and the way we use them, uh, the open-air markets in China and in other parts of the Middle East are just a um, a perfect circumstance for doing this. That's why so many of these epidemics have originated there. And we're basically uh, killing ourselves by the way we are treating and using animals. Uh, We have to give China credit. They have shut down their open-air markets. But, you know, we have open-air live animal markets in America. In New York City, certain ethnic uh, groups have managed to get city ordinances that allow them to uh, kill and sell uh, animals on the street. In other parts of the country that also uh, happens. It's a remarkably stupid thing to do.
0: John, this current coronavirus pandemic, if anyone had any doubt, demonstrates we truly exist in an interconnected world. Many sources have reported that the Chinese Communist Party tried to hide the outbreak of this virus in Wuhan and say that it might have been contained if addressed right away. How can the complicated world community cooperate to avert these infectious disease outbreaks? And I'll tell you, I'm not optimistic.
1: Uh-huh. Well, whatever level of optimism you have, Lori, mine is lower. Mm. Uh, we can't agree about, uh, nations can't agree that we are an interconnected world, whether it's hoarding um, oil or uh, stealing land or um, uh, refusing to participate in environmental um, treaties, or whatever it is, we seem to live for the moment and not accept that what happens in America or what happens in China or what happens in Italy or South America or Africa affects the rest of the planet, because there are no more isolated areas. What happens in one place happens everywhere. We can't agree on climate change. I mean, goodness, There, there is nothing more clear than the fact that if nothing else um, eliminates uh, the human species before, that climate change is going to do that. Uh, and yet we can't even agree to meet minimum standards, which would have no impact, by the way, on uh, the progression of climate change. This has been going on for decades. Um, you know, since NASA first pointed this out in 1980, um, NASA no longer doesn't bother because they've seen no changes in how we approach this. So if we can't agree about something like that, we're not going to, I don't think we're going to agree about this. And I, I have very little hope. Uh, we know the answers, but like so many things in the world and in each individual country in the world, we lack the ability to work together for a single uh, goal.
0: Dr. John Pippen with Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. We really appreciate you spending the hour with us on today's show.
1: Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to your audience.
0: Well, listeners... As you just heard, my dear friend Dr. John Pippin is not optimistic about the world community coming together to lick the big problems facing our civilization, such as viral pandemics. All I can say is that I hope he's wrong, and I hope the feeling of pessimism I harbor now will be replaced by a more positive outlook, maybe as we begin to emerge from this current nightmare. The United States is a great country, and it will continue to lead the way out of this global disaster. As for countries coming together, well, since the beginning of human interactions, we've always fought with each other and have had terrible wars. Indeed, the history of humans on Earth is a violent, bloody one, with the 20th century the worst in all of history. So even with the United Nations, with treaties like NATO, with the European Union, and other manifestations of a more kind world society, we as humans still have quite a ways to go before we'll be working in plain and harmony. Will we ever get there? Or will we blow up the earth? Or make it so toxic that we and all the animals die off? A tragic failed experiment. Who knows? But all we can do is keep trying, because the alternatives are not pretty. So please, let's try to keep our chins up. This is gonna end sooner or later, and we'll be able to go on with our prior lives, and maybe we'll be a little kinder to each other and to animals on the other side. Stay healthy mind your distances wear your masks wash your hands. You know what to do I'm Dr. Lori Kirscher, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet the animals